0: Well, we are into week two of a short series to start the year off. Here's why um, I sensed God's Spirit directing this way just for a couple of weeks. I was um, not only following up two weeks in Ephesians 6, in which we talked about spiritual warfare, the armor of God. We spent two weeks there. I promised you then we'd spend an additional two weeks at the first of this year on this topic. But here's another reason why because no matter what comes your way in 2022 and we don't know what 22 holds, right? We just don't. Someone asked me last week, in fact they said, "Hey, what's 22 look like for you?" and I just said, "I don't know." And they didn't know either. But here's one thing we would both say to you and I think you would agree. Whatever is ahead for us, whether it's mountaintops or valleys, spiritual warfare will be a part of it. There is a battle that's raging and it will interact with you in 2022. It's going to happen. There's a spiritual battle occurring. And so as I thought about that last year and even just in the beginning of this year, I want to bring some helpful teaching uh, to our church on how to make sure that we engage appropriately in the battle that lies ahead in 22, even if your battle occurs while you're on the mountaintop or perhaps while you're in the valley or maybe just along the middle, you know, in, in the normal routine of life. Let's learn together how we can appropriately engage in spiritual warfare so that we see victory and not defeat. And that's my aim. Stan kicked us off last week by looking at the enemy specifically. My role today is to talk more about the arenas in which spiritual warfare occurs. Now, maybe you've not thought about that question, like where does spiritual warfare occur? Are there specific environments or places in which it happens? And I believe there are. I believe the Bible lays them out for us. There are three of them. You've probably heard this phrase before. You may not be sure where it comes from, but here's the three arenas. I'll just give them to you up front it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, if I were to ask you, where do you find that in Scripture? You may be hard pressed to locate where it comes from. I know I was. I thought when I was looking at this last year and I went to the passage I thought it was at, and I was wrong. I was like, well, that's not in there. So I began to wonder, where do I get this phrase, and why is that kind of in my mind? And so it's actually in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We're back to Ephesians. We can't get out of that book, right? Uh, But let me just show you briefly where we get the the concept of three arenas in which spiritual warfare occurs. I'll go to our lab for this. I will not be unpacking this text in all of its context. I'll not be that's not my aim this morning. I just simply want to use this portion of Scripture to show you how Paul does identify the three arenas in which uh, we see spiritual warfare, okay? Just notice with me, would you? That Paul here writes that when we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked, and when we were in this fashion, we were walking this way, we were following the course, watch what he says here, the course of this world. Did you see that there? And then he mentions the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil. So you have the world, you have the devil, and then as he keeps mentioning how the devil influences those who are lost and how he uh, works in the sons of disobedience, he does that through the passions of their flesh. And so just from a high-level view, we can see that Paul here identifies three things three areas, three arenas in which sin and evil operate. And in this order, they are what? Same with me, the world, the devil, and the flesh. Now, I think there may be a subtle reference to the very same thing in James 3.15. Look at this with me. He says that when comparing the wisdom from above to the wisdom that's not from above, here's how he describes the wisdom not from above. He says it's earthly, which would be the worldly type of wisdom. He says there's an unspiritual type of wisdom. The word there is actually sensual or fleshly. And then he says this wisdom that is not from above is also demonic or devilish. So do you see the the subtle hint towards the same three things? The world, the flesh, and the devil. So I think it's very biblical to say that there are three arenas in which evil operates, three places, areas uh, that work together to do more than just trip you. They're out to destroy you, to steal from you. Some writers refer to these three as the unholy trinity. I like to refer to them as, as the trifecta of evil, but they're out to oppose God and his people. So let's take a few minutes if we can, and let's look at these three things, these three areas. I want to spend a little time in class, we'll call it, kind of giving you some definitions, some illustrations, applications, a little more factual, but I want to then hone that in at the very end to making some very strong um, application about what this looks like and how you can detect it and kind of drawing it all to one point. So shall we enter into class for a bit? Let's talk about these three arenas, the world, the flesh, and the devil. When it comes to the world, Here's what you should know. First of all, it's really this unhealthy and and ungodly environment or this ungodly culture. Um, It's an overarching worldview that opposes God. It's anti-God. It operates contrary to biblical reality. This is what we mean when when we talk about the world. Here's what we don't mean. We don't mean trees, plants. We're not talking about the earth as it's created. We're not talking about God's creation. We're talking about the world system that's under the control and influence of the prince of the power of the air. This is the world system. My dad would always say this to me as a kid. He'd say, son, most of the time when you see the word, the world in scripture, you could just insert the word system and it would read exactly fine. The world's system, the world's way of thinking. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, Todd, what is the world's way of thinking? How do we describe the world system? Well, John tells us in his his epistle in chapter two that there are three elements to the world. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Notice how all of these revolve around and center in on what we want, right? The world is trying to maximize you. That's the world's system. Get what you want, what you deserve, what you're entitled to, and And so the world's trying to conform you to making sure that you're at the top of the food chain. It's trying to make sure that you are are forced to take God off the throne and put yourself there. This is the world's way of thinking. It's all about you. And they want to force you into this mold. This is why Romans says in Romans 12 that we should not be conformed to the world. The word conform means to kind of squeeze and shape and force how many of you feel this when you're living day to day? You feel the the world system just squeezing in on you, trying to force you to think a certain way. And that way is a me first way. My rights, my way. This is the world that's that's pressuring us. This is one of the avenues, one of the arenas in which we um, experience warfare and temptation. Interestingly, in the latter part of 2 Timothy, Paul mentions a number of people who were important to him in his ministry. One of those is a man named Demas. And I thought it's I think it's interesting that Paul says that Demas forsook him, and by that phrase I think we understand Paul saying that Demas forsook not only his friendship and his partnership but his call to ministry, he forsook the faith. He turned away from God. Here's why because he loved this present world. Demas saw all that the world was offering him or saying he deserved or had a right to or was entitled to, and he felt like, well, that's what I want. That puts me in the driver's seat. And so he forsook faith and family, spiritual family, to embrace the world. It's just an indication this is where sin operates and how evil uh, entices us in this fashion. It's through the world. So that's the first element that in the first arena. The second one is listed in Ephesians as the prince of the power of the air. It's the devil. I won't spend long here. Stan covered this beautifully last week. Let me just make a few other comments about the devil or Satan, the accuser, our adversary. He's a roaring lion, as Stan mentioned. He's an intelligent being but he's thoroughly deceitful. Okay. And he opposes God uh, and God's people. And he does this through masked evil. Church, hear this. Satan never operates in broad daylight. Never. He always comes as an angel of light. He'll come in some kind of masquerading fashion. He always disguises divides, and then destroys. This is how Satan operates. We see it in multiple places, not only by commands such as uh, 2 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, where he thrives in darkness and he loves to deceive, but we see it in example as well. Stan mentioned Eve last week. I want to revisit that, but I think about Peter. And in both cases, Satan tr- is, is trying to twist what God is up to uh, to make the person like you and me, to make us think we're missing out, as Stan said, that God's holding out, that we're not getting what we deserve, we're not getting what we're entitled to. Again, much like the world, Satan's goal is to maximize you, to maximize self, to prioritize you, to, to remove God, make you the centerpiece. He did this with Peter. Christ had just told the disciples that he, he was resolutely set on going to the cross, and Peter actually says to Jesus, sorry, you can't do that. Like, I can't even fathom that kind of conversation. Can you? I mean, with Jesus live and in person, they say, no, no, Jesus, you can't do that. Why would Peter try to stop Jesus from fulfilling the mission of God? Here's why, because it didn't line up with what Peter wanted. Peter's still thinking about the, the consolation or redemption of Jerusalem, of Israel, in the earthly form, in the kingdom. And he's thinking about a high cabinet position, a seat on the left or the right, like, you know, we'll get rid of the Romans. Like, well, you can't go and die. That's not what we were planning on. Peter's usurping the plan of God, he's inserting himself. And what does Jesus say to Peter? These are astounding words. He says, Get behind me, Satan. The spirit of Satan was influencing Peter's thoughts and words and trying to stop and prevent God's work. Christ calls it out. So do you see how Satan works? He masks things. He disguises things. And he tries to make sure that you are lifted up and sense and perhaps feel that, well, this is not getting what I deserve or what I want or what I'm entitled to. Follow this trend. Both so far with the world and the devil, their aim is to maximize you and to minimize God. Right, They're appealing to yourself. Notice the third arena. It's called the flesh. We don't need a ton of explanation here. We all can understand, can't we? It's that inner propensity, that inclination to sin. Now, what's comforting is, as Paul talks about this idea of the flesh, that part of us that um, wrongly desires Wrong things, and then when that's exhibited, it's our, dis, it's our depravity on display. I mean, when Paul talks about this, he, it's comforting because he says, even those who are born again still have to war with the flesh. So I'm comforted that Apostle Paul admits his struggle here, aren't you? Like, we're not alone in this. Paul calls it a, a law, in fact, in Romans 7. You should read these verses later, that operates in his members, that when he wants to do good, Evil is close at hand. Like, could the church say amen to that? Like, you've you've felt that, haven't you? You've seen that struggle. I mean, you've kind of borne that out in your life. So Paul talks about this this war that's going on between his flesh and his spirit. It's a law. It's a reality. And Paul even concludes this section by saying this, that he will not even be delivered from this experience of this war going on until he's delivered from this body of death. The only way you're going to escape this reality of the presence of sin warring against you is when you get a glorified body. Now, Christ has freed us from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. Hallelujah. But this presence remains. We've said often in seminary that the phrase sin still remains. Man, we we feel that in us. It's called our flesh. It's the members of our body that wrongfully desire Things that that actually hurt and destroy us. But our flesh craves them. When God saves us and His Spirit's in us, now we have this war that's raging. And so this is called the flesh. One example of this and its consequences in a terrible manner would be David of the Old Testament. 2 Samuel, you know, he's in his palace. He's God's man in charge of, shepherding God's people. But he sees Bathsheba and he lusts after her and he uses his position and authority wrongfully to get Bathsheba. He not only commits adultery with her, she's married to Uriah, and then he has Uriah murdered. So in, in so many ways, uh, that moment was a moment when David's flesh got the best of him. And if you read through the Chronicles and the Samuels and the Kings, you'll find that that sin had dysfunctional effects for decades in David's family. So where did that come from? It came from David's flesh. So these three arenas, are you following me? Just definitionally, kind of factually, the world the devil and the flesh. Three places, three arenas in which spiritual warfare occurs. We've called them the trifecta of evil or the unholy trinity. I think Clinton Arnold, in his book, Three Questions About Spiritual Warfare, he makes a very good point. Let me just read you a quote he has. Because as you think about these, you, you may tend to think, well, you know, can I just uh, isolate them and identify them and go after them and solve them individually? He says this, this is quite insightful. It's extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, for us to make sharp distinctions among the three in trying to understand our own personal struggles and those of other people. In other words, this unholy trinity, this trifecta of evil, they weave and work together in ways that's very difficult to, you know, kind of separate them. You're, you're fighting all of them, at least one of them. They're disguised. They mask themselves. They'll lie to you. And so it's not always helpful to try to figure out which one am I battling. Let me just pick that one and go after it. The truth is they're all coming at us. The world system, your own flesh, and Satan. Now, as you think about these three things... I think one thing that I want you to notice is this. When, when these begin to collide, you're going to find that this is occurring. It's going to be your, your flesh against God's Spirit. It's going to be yourself against God's Spirit. Because when you start thinking, how can I detect where these are occurring and, and what's in play? What you're going to find is that when your self rises up, Wants to fight for its way, get its rights, make sure that your voice is heard. And you can use a lot of phrases to describe that moment. But when you feel like, man, I've got to have my way, when yourself is being maximized and God's spirit's being minimized, that's spiritual warfare. Because the world, the devil, and the flesh want to maximize yourself. That's their main aim get rid of God, put yourself on the throne. When you sense that happening, when you sense that temptation occurring, you are in spiritual warfare. Now, let me see if I can illustrate this for you a bit. This illustration will probably leave you with more questions than perhaps explanations. Okay? So I want to say to you up front... I'm giving you an illustration of, and I'm giving you some teaching this morning, probably more from the 30,000 foot view. There are a lot of well, what if and what about, and I would love to engage with you on those. Feel free to email me. Let's text. If you want to get together, that's fine. I'm not saying we're going to answer every question in these illustrations or even in this high-level teaching, but I want to maintain that I think this is exactly right, that in, in, in a general sense, warfare can be spotted when Either the world, the flesh, or the devil begins to tempt you and prod you to make yourself the centerpiece. And God's spirit more like a you know a tangential matter. When and when those collide, that's spiritual warfare. It happens in all kinds of ways. I experienced it Wednesday. I received some news Wednesday. This is the illustration I want to share with you that I think will help, but it will probably make you have a lot of questions too. I received some news Wednesday that I just didn't like. It wasn't bad news. It was just news that I didn't think was helpful. And I remember the moment I heard it, like, well, I'll make sure we stop that. That won't happen. Now, you can go ahead and and grin because you've had the same kind of experience at times, haven't you? I'm flesh and blood like you, okay? We have similar experiences. But I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to make sure that we, we somehow that just can't happen. Now, this wasn't about an issue with a verse behind it. My opinion on the matter, I didn't have a verse to support it, and they didn't either. There, there was legitimate opinions. I, at the moment, like, you know what? That way is probably not a really good way. My way is way better. And I began to create a narrative and devise ways to make sure that my way got done. And it wasn't over a bad thing, it's over a good thing. And so most of the afternoon Wednesday and into the evening, this kind of occupied mental space. You ever been there? You just can't get it off your mind? You can nod again, yeah? I just, I just couldn't quit thinking about it. It's like, I, I can't let that happen. That just can't go forward. We can't do that. Somewhere, I would say maybe 10-ish on Wednesday night, the Lord's Spirit began to convict me and, and based on even some of the scriptures that I was studying to share with you, just said, man, you're, you're, you're really intent on making sure that you get your way in this, aren't you? I'm like, well. And, and I begin to just, instead of answering back, I'm like, well, I guess that is what I'm doing. I'm wanting to make sure that I get my way. And God just began to say, well, why don't you trust me? Like, you don't have a verse to back up where you are and they don't either, like, why don't, why don't you just adopt humility. Just embrace a humble response, a humble re- approach. And why don't you trust me that I will work my will? Like, well, I don't like that answer very much, right? But I mean, the Lord's spirit was so graciously convicting. And I think before midnight on Wednesday night, I just had committed to the Lord. You know what? I'm not going to respond to this in a fleshly, worldly devilish way. I'm going to resist this so that Satan doesn't take something that really is a minor matter, turn it into a major matter that suddenly we're distracted from the mission of God to try to address something over here that really possibly and perhaps isn't that important really. I want to make it important because I'm worried I may not get my way. Myself was rising up. God's spirit was was being minimized. I could tell they were clashing. And God was calling me to just trust him, to depend upon him, to realize, hey, this is just just have a humble conversation. And man, it was just a it was a moment I realized here's what's happening. The devil's trying to mask and and disguise something, making me feel like I'm not getting something I deserve or not in, or entitled to, or may, you know, th- this is not gonna work out like I think it should. And and now that's going to become the issue. We're going to fight and argue, and it could distract our family, it could distract our church, and it's not even a biblical issue. And it hit me man, that's the work of the devil. So I just committed to the God, I'm not going to buy that apple. <laughs> I'm not going there. And instead, I might have a different opinion. But watch this. I'm not going to fight for my way. Now, again, this will bring up questions because you may ask yourself, well, are there times you should? Let's have those conversations. On biblical issues with verses to support it, clear mandates, I'm sure there are other responses. But in this situation where there was no clear verse, meaning no clear way forward, we could have some disagreement. I mean, I could see Satan warring against God's spirit in developing my character By making myself rise up and fight against stuff. And James 4 says, No wonder you have arguments among yourselves and divisions because you fight for your own way. And he says, That's the work of the devil. That's the world. That's the flesh. And I'm so thankful and gracious that God just illuminated my mind that evening. Like, this is not to be something to fight over. That's how Satan works, that's what he wants us to do. So my response now is completely different. Do you see what I'm saying? That's how spiritual warfare occurs. When you sense, I'm going to do all I can to get my way, to fight for my rights, to make sure myself is elevated, you should be on guard. That's the moment, say to yourself, Satan's in this somewhere. This isn't good. I mean, some of your marriages are this way. It's just one argument after another. The husband or the wife is just fighting for their rights all the time. That's Satan, right in the middle of your marriage, just keeping you divided and gradually destroying you. And he's disguising the temptation by thinking you're not getting what you deserve. Your way matters most. After all, you've got the better idea. I mean, all these crazy ideas that are just, they're lies from Satan. Some of you have that in your friendships. Some of you children in here, your teenagers, teenagers, you have that with your parents. Satan's lying to you about your, your parents' intentions and, and their heart for you. And, and you believe his lies and so you have his automatic disposition of fighting against them. Whenever yourself is elevated above God's spirit, that's a spiritual warfare. We must fight it. And the question is then how do we fight it? And the counterintuitive word is we fight it through surrender. Surrender is the key to victory in spiritual warfare. Now I base that on the example of Christ in Matthew and Mark where it's his temptation by the devil is chronicled. Allow me a few minutes to walk you through that. Christ is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He prays and he fasts for 40 days. He experiences these temptations from Satan that are appealing to his flesh as a man and they're rooted in a system of me first, the world. So I think you find elements of these three arenas in the temptation of Christ hey, we can take these stones, you can turn them into bread and you can get your hunger satisfied. Now, there were angels coming later to do exactly that. But hey, preempt God's plan, preempt his timing, and do it your way. You know better. You see, Satan elevating the, the self, so to speak, minimizing God. Hey, you're not getting what you deserve, Jesus. You deserve everything you can see. In fact, I'll give it to you. Go ahead and throw yourself off the temple. Save yourself, and then everybody will know you really are the man. I mean, all of these temptations were designed to move him away from dependence and surrender to God's plan and to embrace his own plan. That's why in every temptation, Jesus countered with Scripture. Scripture. He surrendered to, he fell on God's revealed word. And watch this, God's revealed plan. He did this in the power of the spirit and in an attitude of prayer. So if you ask me, Todd, what is surrender? Here's the definition I would give you theologically based on the scriptures. This is one I've contrived or made up, whatever you call it. You can probably find some better ones. But from what I've studied, surrender is falling on God's word in the spirit of prayer, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Example: Your flesh says, "Hey, don't wait till marriage to engage in sexual activity; do it now." But God's word says marriage is where that is enjoyed. One man, one woman, forever. So we follow God's word. We surrender to His plan in prayer and humility, empowered by the Spirit. The devil says, "Hey, keep all you can." Don't be generous. You've gone beyond just saving. You're hoarding. You're selfish. God says to be generous. And so you surrender what you think and your rights, and you say, you know what? I'll trust God. He's promised to meet all my needs. And so we fall on God's word, empowered by the Spirit in prayer. Those are just two examples. I'm just trying to make surrender very practical and tactical, What does it mean to surrender in spiritual warfare? It means knowing what God says about the issue and then falling on that in prayer and empowered by the Spirit. So back to my illustration. What God would call for from me is a Philippians 2 attitude. Look not only to your own interest but to the interest of others. So when I got this news on Wednesday, instead of responding like, hey, that ain't gonna work. It's not what I want. We're not doing that. I'll devise and create ways to make sure that's kept down. Instead, I should say, you know what? Hey, let's think about that. Your interests matter. Let's talk. And and that's a humble response because I'm going to trust God's word and in prayer and empowered by the Spirit, I'm going to surrender to that. That's surrender. And that's how you win in spiritual warfare. Now watch this. Jesus not only did that in that temptation in the wilderness, he did this in the garden. When Satan came at this final time to try to tempt Jesus. And Jesus said, Lord, if there's any way this cup of wrath could pass from me, like, is there some other way that I could avoid, you know, could accomplish this without going through the cross? Self is. Perhaps being exerted? Is there some other avenue? Is there some other way? He says, but not my will, your will be done. What a beautiful posture of surrender. And when he left the garden, he sees those sleepy-eyed disciples. What does he say to them? Pray that you don't enter into temptation. So I want to say to you, church, as your pastor, surrender Is this posture and mentality Of falling on God's word God's plan Dependence upon what God says In prayer Empowered by the spirit When you do that Then you are throwing yourself Upon Christ You're surrendering to him And your victory then Will be found in his victory Because we don't fight for victory We fight from victory And if we're in Christ Then we can trust God We can depend upon him And he will always accomplish his will. That's a victory. We resist Satan. He flees from us. We trust God's word. We fall on it. We simply obey him, not our own thoughts and desires and fleshly appetites. And then God always comes through. And because he won the battle in Christ and we're in Christ, he wins the battle for us. I hope you're encouraged that the avenue to victory In spiritual warfare is surrender. And what does surrender look like? Falling on God's word in prayer empowered by the spirit. Whatever your issue, land there. Don't fight for your rights. Don't elevate yourself. Don't prioritize your entitlements. That's just feeding the warfare. That's what Satan wants you to do. That's what the world wants you. That's what your flesh wants you to do. Instead, Pray that you decrease, as John said, and he increases. And in those moments, man, Christ will fight for you. God will be victorious for you. and You'll experience victory against the world, the devil, and the flesh. That's why I think an apt summary of all we've said today is simply this. The battle over self is only won by the surrender of yourself To the one. And who's that one? It's Christ the Lord. I don't think it's odd that at the end, well near the end of that first passage in James 4, where he talks about no wonder you're always warring and battling, he calls upon those Christians to submit themselves to God. In the same context as resisting the devil. The concept of surrender is vital to understanding how to achieve victory in spiritual warfare. So here's what I think is happening in this room right now. I think in each of these chairs, where there's a person, in the airport of your mind, there's one or two thoughts circling, issues. There's one or two areas that you've yet to surrender. And those planes are circling the control tower of your mind right now. you know that yourself is battling God's spirit and you you feel like you're getting a raw deal maybe something you deserve and you didn't get maybe God's holding out on you just something about that like I'm, I'm not ready to give that up because man I don't like how that may end and you're fighting hard for what you think you want and you deserve my pastoral plea to you is surrender that to God Exhibit your dependence upon him in prayer and spirit-led power and say, Lord, I'm simply going to trust you and obey you in this area. I'll surrender that. I'm not going to fight you on it any longer. And the devil and the pressure of the world and the pull of the flesh will flee from you. doesn't mean you won't have the battle again tomorrow or the next day, but this is how you fight in these arenas, through surrender. So whatever that issue is circling right now, would you adopt a posture of surrender to God? Trust Him. Depend upon Him. Fall upon His Word and let Him be your victory. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.